Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, would you open, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Allow me a brief announcement. A dear sister of ours uh, passed away recently, and we're going to have a funeral for her on Wednesday of this week. I placed some little notices uh, on the table in the back. Uh, Nellie Taylor uh, passed away. Uh, she and her husband, Jim, uh, were very active in our assembly for many years. They worked uh, very hard among the Spanish assemblies in Southern California. Jim was an elder. He passed away in 07, and Nellie passed away, and we'll remember uh, her life and uh, the joy that she now has uh, being with our Savior as we're singing those hymns. Uh, we were reminded uh, that Nellie is seeing our Lord uh, face to face. Uh, that funeral is Wednesday morning, 10 a.m. at Grace Bible Chapel. I was flying to uh, meet with Jabe Nicholson. I was in Chicago uh, trying to skip across uh, Lake Michigan, and weather rolled in, and they began to delay the flight. He lived close enough to the airport uh, that he would actually leave from his house to pick me up at the airport uh, at a shorter distance than it would uh, take me to fly across the lake. It, it was, I, I needed to call him and say, uh, hold on, uh, the plane isn't flying. Uh, let's see uh, when it actually takes off so that I could say, now you can go to the airport. And so I started texting him, and we ended up texting back and forth five times as the flight continuously was delayed and delayed and delayed. Here in California, that doesn't happen much. We don't have much weather, but back in the Midwest, it happens all the time in which you think you're getting somewhere and you're not because of storms. But finally, after I texted him the fifth time to say another half-hour wait, he called me and said, who are you sitting next to? I thought, that's a superfluous question. What does that have to do with anything? I said, I'm delayed. I was just trying to warn you, don't leave the house yet. And he says, who are you sitting next to? And I said, why? And he says, because I think the Lord wants you there, not here. And so I looked over, and I, I saw there was a young lady there who had a Hebrew Bible open, was reading from the Old Testament. I said, I'll call you back. <clears throat> so, the interesting thing is that uh, very often we are so focused on going about our lives with our plans uh, that we aren't very sensitive to the leading of the Spirit as to how He might use us in personal work, in talking to people about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And so this morning I'd like to look at John chapter 3 and Jesus' interview with Nicodemus, and this evening I'd like to look at John chapter 4. Jesus' interview with the woman at the well. You'll notice that they are completely different stories, except both of them are interacting with Jesus. In this story, uh, we have a man of high morality, high religiosity. Uh, in the story tonight, we have a woman who uh, is living in sin, who's had a number of previous husbands, uh, is not orthodox in her theology, actually heterodox in her theology. Uh, Nicodemus is a very well-respected man. She was not a respected woman. Complete contrast, and yet insights that we can see in how we would relate uh, in the insights of Jesus uh, regarding how to share the gospel. I'm reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus is a man who represents the best in the nation. He is a rabbi, a teacher of the law. He is a Pharisee. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, he was the best of the best. And yet, uh, though uh, he is very moral and very religious, he has poor spiritual insight. Uh, this surprises us because we would have thought that he, knowing the Old Testament well, would have recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah. If we realize the people around us uh, may be very religious, they may be church-going folk, uh, and yet they may not understand the gospel. They may be attending churches that do not preach the gospel. They may never have truly, personally entrusted their eternal destiny to Jesus Christ. They may have not uh, believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross personally for them and have believed that Jesus is God come in the flesh, our Savior, the promised Messiah. And so when Nicodemus comes, he chooses to come at night. Uh, I don't think he wants people to know that he is visiting Jesus. Uh, he uh, is a bit shy about these things. It's probably not good for his career if people knew uh, that he was talking to Jesus. And so he hopes to have a private interview that others uh, will not see. It describes him uh, as a ruler of the Jews. Uh, that's very exclusive. There are only 70 members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, being a Pharisee, he'd be a political conservative and a theological conservative. He would observe the law very carefully. Uh, he would be well-respected, uh, and when he says to, to Jesus, Rabbi, uh, he is speaking to Jesus respectfully. He's honoring him, obviously, as a teacher, and he says, we, meaning apparently those with whom he associates, uh, members of the Sanhedrin and of the Pharisees, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Again, that sounds complimentary until uh, he references only the fact that Jesus has done miracles. He says, because no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And this then reveals his understanding of Jesus. He does not understand that Jesus is God come in the flesh. He does not understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Uh, he is viewing Jesus as somewhat like a prophet. Uh, one to whom God has revealed information, and one at times God, say, for example, with Elijah and Elisha, uh, gave powers to authenticate their ministry uh, by the ability to do wondrous signs and miracles. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. 
So regardless of how religious or intelligent or informed our friends may be, they may have an inadequate comprehension of Jesus. They may be well-read, they may plan for the future, they may have uh, accountants that help them with uh, the investments they make for the future. They may be thinking ahead, but they may not be thinking about heaven and how to have a relationship with God and forgiveness of sins. And consequently, we need to be friendly to our friends and talk to them about what the truth is regarding relationship with Jesus Christ. And you'll notice uh, Jesus is not shy to just cut them off and go right to the major point. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That sounds almost rude, isn't it? Uh, now, it could be that John's writing the conversation in brief, and that's probably true. But I don't think John would have written it this way unless there was some sort of rather abrupt subject change in which Jesus was placing it back on Nicodemus and saying, unless you are born again, you don't really know God, and you won't be a part of the coming kingdom. You must be born again. Now, most of us have been reared uh, where we have heard that kind of terminology, and we have uh, thought deeply about this before, and so it doesn't strike us as strange. But imagine if you were hearing this for the very first time, and you were listening to what Jesus was saying. In fact, uh, many of the people that we now talk to as we are greeting people are fairly uneducated regarding spiritual things. They've not been going to church in their youth. And so they have not heard much terminology like this. Although uh, earlier, maybe a decade or two ago, uh, people were talking about those so-called born-again Christians, uh, that's fallen away. And many of the millennials aren't even familiar with this kind of language, you must be born again. Nicodemus, somewhat like a teacher, decides to debate Jesus in a sense and take his point to the ridiculous end and say, I'm a grown man, look how big I am. You're not saying as a grown man, I'm going to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again, are you? He's trying to make Jesus's statement seem ridiculous. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Sometimes when I'm counseling with a person who's expressed some interest in Jesus Christ and have uh, indicated enough interest that I'm actually sharing the terms of the gospel with them, uh, they switch into a defensive mode in which they throw out things they've heard about Christianity, and they make various objections. Sometimes they're not even their own personal objections. They're just giving these objections, hoping that they might derail what I'm saying and get me off target or take me away from the gospel or in some way make themselves feel more innocent. And you can sense this in which Nicodemus is saying, what you're describing is ridiculous. Nobody can possibly be born a second time. What in the world do you think you're saying? And listen to Jesus' response 
patiently explaining in more detail what he has described. He's created enough interest that he has hooked Nicodemus and is reeling him in as far as his level of interest and his willingness to dialogue with Jesus. He repeats, verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then taking up this thought that Nicodemus had about uh, being born physically, he says, well, that which is born of flesh is flesh. So human birth only produces human physical beings. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he says, no, you're wrong. I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm using a metaphor here for spiritual birth. You need to be born spiritually so that you have spiritual relationship with God. So don't marvel when I say to you. And then he says, you plural, you plural must be born again. Nicodemus had started with the plural when he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher of the law, as if the, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees thought that Jesus was a good teacher at this point. He says, y'all must be born again. Now, when he says you are incomplete when you're only born of water and spirit, this has caused a number of uh, students of the Bible to wonder what is this water to which he refers. He obviously, when he's saying be born of the Spirit, is talking about the change that is made when the Holy Spirit uh, causes us to become new. But what is this water? Now, some have suggested that he's referring back to natural birth, and they take the view of Nicodemus that uh, one must be born first physically, then perhaps one can be born spiritually. Uh, but that doesn't seem to solve the problem because he says you must be born both of water and the Spirit. Some people think the water is referring to the Word of God and the way in which the Word of God works on us, such as in Ephesians 5.26. Others think that it's speaking of water baptism. Uh, and they would say, unless we are baptized, we cannot be saved. The scripture is clear, though, that there is nothing that we do to be saved. Uh, there is no work that could possibly save us. See Titus 3.5. Some say maybe he is talking about water as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, such as in John chapter 7, where he says, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And some uh, see maybe he's referring to the repentance ministry of John the Baptist, that it did involve uh, a ceremonial kind of baptism. In fact, John the Baptist comes up later on in the passage. However, I think that Jesus is referring to something in the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. And he says, are you the teacher of the law and do not understand these things? Verse 10. So I think he's most likely referring to a passage like Ezekiel 36, in which in the Old Testament, there is a description of how God would change his people and make them new. You can find this in Isaiah 32 or in Joel 2 as well. In Ezekiel 36, beginning with verse 24, he says, 
I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. In that passage, you can clearly see that he speaks both of a sprinkling of water, of a cleansing of their filthiness, spiritually speaking, and a giving of a new heart with a new spirit in the way in which the Holy Spirit comes upon us and regenerates us. I think he's referring to what Nicodemus should have known of the institution of the new covenant and the need for him to be transformed into a new person by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus gives him illustrations of how the Spirit works and how he should allow the Spirit to change his heart. Uh, Much like teachers give illustrations, Jesus gives an illustration. In verse 8, he says, the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This weekend, we're having Santa Ana winds. Uh, We're having high, powerful winds, 50-mile-an-hour winds racing from the desert over the mountains and compressing themselves down into the valley here and causing triple-digit temperatures. And yet, when you look at the wind, you can't see it, but you can see, in effect, what it does. My eyes are itchy this weekend due to the fact of whatever it is, the wind is blowing into town. My, my allergies are getting kicked up. I can sense the effect of it, even though I can't see the wind itself. What we don't realize, perhaps, because we don't have the same language, is that his term here for spirit is pneuma in the Greek, And pneuma has multiple meanings. It can mean, uh, for example, the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, It can mean wind. It can mean breath. And he uses a very appropriate illustration to say, God's work upon you is invisible, but God's work upon you is real. You need a real change of heart. You need God to take that heart of stone and give you a new heart. That's what we call new birth. We call that regeneration. Sometimes when I'm teaching my students, uh, they get bewildered and they say, uh, I lost you there for a sec. Can you go back and say that again? Or some of them say, could you explain that but use different words? You sense that Nicodemus is struggling here and keeping up. One of the brightest, most well-educated among the Jewish people is having trouble keeping up with Jesus' understanding. Do you know that unbelievers are blinded by Satan? They can be bright in so many ways and that Satan is seeking to deceive them and lie to them and prevent them from understanding the truth. 
And this is something that we need to know as we're talking to people, is that we're working with people who could be very intelligent and well-read and understanding in so many ways, but when it comes to spiritual things, they're hard-hearted and blinded by Satan's work. Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can these things be? Sometimes I just want to shake students. And Jesus says to him in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? He uses the definite article. He's saying, Israel's looking to people like you. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? How can you not know this? You've read the Old Testament. How can you not see that you need a heart change? You need to be born anew. That born again has a preposition on the front of it that makes born again. And that preposition, anah, can mean again in a second time, or it can mean, and this is interesting that sometimes words have double meanings, that can mean from above. And so you'll see some translators translate this from above. Both are theologically true. You need to be born from God, born from above. You need to be born again in the sense that physical birth is not enough. You need a spiritual birth. And Charles Ryrie says, why don't we translate it born anew because it covers both of those bases. You need a new birth. Do you not understand these things? Verse 11, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen, and you don't receive our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You know, there, there are deeper subjects than this, Nicodemus. If I tried to explain to you how God is Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, yet one God. Imagine how you would stumble over that. If I tried to explain to you the incarnation, that I am God, come in the flesh, you'd stumble over that. Oh, Nicodemus, open your heart. Understand what I'm saying. You need God to change you. I was once uh, counseling a camper up at Verdugo Pines. Uh, it was Thursday night. I had given the gospel. Uh, I'd asked if uh, people wanted to stay after and be counseled in response to the gospel message. Uh, please stay behind. I asked the rest of the campers to go back to their cabins. A number of uh, campers stayed, and so the counselors stayed as well, and, and there weren't enough counselors to go around, and so I went down and sat next to a 16-year-old, and we began to talk. He started out uh, with very common questions, uh, easy to answer. Uh, I had studied uh, those questions before. I knew the answers. I took them, took them to those places in the scripture and showed them to him. Uh, but he kept asking question after question after question. And his questions were getting harder and harder and harder. And as I was looking around the room, I was seeing that the room is emptying. Uh, we're soon to be the last two people in the room, and you're still asking questions. Sometimes when we're dealing with people, they are struggling with what we are asking of them. And so part of the way to uh, stall, in a sense, the 
spiritual pressure on them uh, is to make objections. And you'll notice that Jesus isn't willing to let Nicodemus go here. Nicodemus needs to come to the understanding of what God's requirements are for him. He may think he's kept the law, but the law will save no one because not one of us is capable of keeping it perfectly. All of us stumble according to the law. Stumbling would cause us to fail any commandment of God of do this and you shall live. We couldn't do this and we will live because all of us know ourselves to be violators of the law. I remember when Paul wrote uh, that he had no conviction regarding covetousness. He never even understood what covetousness meant until it was explained to him. And then suddenly he said, I was overwhelmed with the realization of how many things I covet. I want things that don't belong to me. He says, covetousness condemned me once I came to understand what it meant. And that's true of every one of us. If we were to go through God's law, we would find ourselves condemned over and over again as we examine ourselves against his law. We need God's grace. We need God's mercy. And though in conversation with a believer we may make objections, the believer should remain patient as he explains the gospel to others. Jesus says in verse 13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now certainly he would remember the story of Jacob's ladder in which there was the vision of a ladder that led clear from earth to heaven and angels going back and forth. He remembers that, I'm sure. And Jesus said, no one has actually ascended to heaven but the one who's come down from heaven. That is the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of Man. This title comes from the prophecy in Daniel in which Daniel received a prophecy from God that God would have a man rule over all the earth as his mediator. He would be called the Son of Man. And Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the promised fulfillment of Daniel. I am the one you are looking for. I am the promised Messiah. The Son of Man who is in heaven can explain these things to you because I've come down from heaven to explain these things to you. Which reminds Jesus, this up and down, of the thought that the Christ, the Messiah, must be lifted up. And he again gives another Old Testament illustration of another story that Nicodemus ought to be able to relate to, the story of when the children wandering in the wilderness of Israel uh, had uh, sinned against God, and God allowed serpents to strike them. And God said to Moses, when Moses cried out, well, lift up a bronze servant, and those who in faith look up at the bronze servant will be prevented from dying from these serpents. Jesus says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, indicating that his death is not going to be 
by stoning, in which they throw you off a precipice and then cast stones upon you. No, it's just the opposite. He will be lifted up high for all to see. We know that eventually will turn out to be a Roman cross on which he'll be lifted up high. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How are you capable of being born again? That which is born of flesh is flesh, but you need to be born of the Spirit. What is the requirement to be born of the Spirit? It is to believe. If you believe in him, the promised Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who has come to save you, if you believe in him, you will not perish. And he doesn't by this mean annihilation by being burned up. No, he means eternal conscious punishment of ruin in hell. Instead of perishing, you will have eternal abundant life, which will begin right now. You will be changed. Your heart will be changed. You'll be given a new heart and a new spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be born again. And our favorite verse, perhaps in all of Scripture, comes next. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You'll notice that God's motivation to save us is his love. In justice, you would have thought that God would have said, they have rebelled against me. I'll let them go and let them be destroyed. But God is not only just, he's also loving. And God loves us enough to make provision for us to be saved at his own personal sacrifice. The Father was willing to send the Son. The Father was willing to punish his Son in our place. The Father was willing to judicially separate himself in fellowship from the Son and make him sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ezekiel 18 tells us, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He desires everyone to be saved, according to 1 Timothy 2.4 or 2 Peter 3.9. It's a beautiful thought that God so loved the world that he was willing to punish his son in our place. He gave his only begotten, the only one born of him, his unique one and only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. On the Titanic, uh, the owners of Macy's department store, Ida and Isidore Strauss, were traveling across the ocean in first class. And when the Titanic struck the iceberg, they left their stateroom and went up to uh, the life rafts. And his wife got into the boat. And she looked at him, aren't you following me? And the call was going out, women and children first. And being quite the gentleman, he says, I am waiting for the women and children first. 
And as they were watching this take place, they began to realize there's not enough time for everyone to get off this boat. Uh, This is unlikely to mean that he will have a chance to get into the light boat. And so she made a, a fateful decision in many ways. She decided, I don't want to be in the boat without him. And she got out, and the two of them went back to their stateroom and laid down on their bed and went down with a ship. Isn't it amazing that you could know that if you were to get into the lifeboat, you could be saved? Isn't it amazing that she actually was in the lifeboat and got back out and said, I'd rather be with him than be alone? It's a hard choice for a person to say, I will stop trusting myself and I will entrust my eternal destiny to Jesus Christ. In one sense, it sounds so easy. But in the other sense, it's so hard for sinful, rebellious, blinded people to say, I trust Jesus. But this is what the requirement is. This is the term of the gospel. This is what he asks. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So many people think that God is out to destroy us. But notice he says in verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Though we may be alive physically, we're walking, breathing, physical human beings, spiritually speaking, we are dead, meaning we're spiritually separated from God. Death is separation, to be Dead physically is to be separated from your physical body, uh, to be separated from your loved ones. Uh, To be dead spiritually is to be separated from God, have no fellowship with God at all. We are in a state of being condemned up until the point that we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ for our salvation, believing that his payment on the cross paid for our sins. The requirement again, and John says this 99 times in his gospel, is you must believe. One final illustration he gives to Nicodemus is in verse 19, an illustration of light and darkness. He says, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Sometimes in the conversations I'm having with people, I'm just bewildered as to why they won't believe. Obviously, being a believer myself, understanding the truth and understanding what it means to be forgiven and being so grateful for being forgiven, I can't imagine why a person would be so obstinate as to hear the gospel and refuse to believe. We have a relative of ours who still to this day will not believe. He's at the point where it's not soon before he will pass away. 
And when we talk to him about the word of God, as we quote scripture to him, he can quote the rest of the verse for us. And yet, with a sense of personal self-sufficiency, he says, no, that's not what I want. There's this spiritual darkness that causes a love for secrecy and a hatred of the light of truth. He even speaks of those who would worship idols rather than worshiping the creator. They'd rather worship what they have made with their own hands than worship the one who has created them. Unbelievers have no ultimate meaning in life. There's no worthy motivation for them. They have no adequate goal, just a destiny of doom. They love darkness rather than light. Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. We keep secrets that we wish no one knew about, and yet we can even turn on ourselves with hatred toward ourselves because we realize how horrible it is, the things that we are capable of doing. But he says, the one who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. What a tender invitation to Nicodemus. What a reproving indictment of a very religious man, a leader of his people, to say, you're still in darkness. You need to come into the light. Your deeds need to be clearly seen. You need to allow God to change you. What's interesting about the way John tells the story is that he tells it in a manner that we as readers of his gospel are saying, what happens? Have you ever had a person start to tell you a story and then not finish it? And you're wondering like, well, what happens? Have you ever watched part of a movie and then you had to leave, turn it off or whatever, and you walk away and you go like, I don't know what happens in the story. John leaves us hanging as to what happened to Nicodemus. However, in John chapter 7, verses 50 and 51, Nicodemus is credited with rebuking the Pharisees for condemning Jesus without a hearing. And you say, Nicodemus, you stood up against your peers defending Jesus, saying, our law doesn't condemn a man without a hearing. Still, you might say, did he ever believe? Did he respond to Jesus' invitation? And it's not till after Jesus died that we hear of Nicodemus again. All his disciples have run for their lives, they're in hiding, they're dejected. But two leaders among the people come out of hiding. I think that they were secret believers, afraid to let people know the decision that they had made. Joseph of Arimathea decided to man up and go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. 
And so he took the body and the new tomb that had just been carved for himself, where Joseph of Arimathea thought he would have his body laid, he was willing to give to Jesus. And guess who helped Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Sometimes when we're working with people and we're wondering, have they responded? Will they respond? We realize we're not the ones that bring them to salvation. We are messengers conveying the gospel. Our desire is to cooperate with the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. John 16 says the Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness and judgment. We want to cooperate with the Spirit. And so we pray and we ask the Spirit, what should I say? How should I say it? What should I do? And the Spirit guides us in this. It's the Spirit who gives life, not us. We are messengers conveying the truth of the gospel. And may the Lord find us faithful as we relate the gospel to those who need to hear. Oh, Father, we come before you and we thank you for this revelation of Jesus Christ and his work with Nicodemus and how helpful it is to hear that we are not saved until we are born again. There are so many among us, of our friends, our colleagues, our friends at work, our associates in our various dealings, even our neighbors who believe themselves to be religious and do not actually know you. I pray that we be faithful witnesses to tell them the truth, that you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. Help us, therefore, to be faithful witnesses, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.